Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome, everyone. This is the Mind Sculptors podcast. I am your host, Callahan. We have a great show lined up for you all today. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to take a quick second to thank you for joining us this week. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, please make sure to like, subscribe, and comment down below. If you want access to our Discord server as well as some extra content, please make sure to head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Sculptors or check out the link in the description. Today we have a really cool uh, topic uh, that Pongo came up with. And uh, we're going to be kind of discussing this over the next couple of months uh, in and out as kind of like a mini series for you guys. Um, and it's, uh, you know, this deck building, uh, the, the this theory behind deck building. And so today I'm, of course, going to be joined by Pongo. Pongo, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Awesome. And joining us uh, as well is, uh, you know, it wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about a, a theory about deck building, right, if we didn't have... Uh, one of the original uh, laboratory maniacs, right? Uh, one of the guys who gets in there uh, and is crazy uh, talking about it, too. So maybe not crazy. Maybe that's not what it is. But anyway, we have Cobblepot joining us today. Cobble, how's it going? It's going well. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, so, Pongo, you, you and I talked about this a little bit, and we've talked uh, some about this. So just kind of this idea and what it is we're talking about uh, here over the next you know several weeks uh, is this idea of deck building and all the main pieces of it, and you kind of have a fun name for it. Yeah, so um, the way I see this is kind of like as a mini-series, as we were discussing um, so expect like a few episodes kind of, uh, doing a deep dive into deck building. Um, and what we're trying to do, that's a little bit different from what, you know, your typical CDH podcast might do when talking about deck building is we want to look at deck building kind of across magic. So we're going to be discussing other formats quite a bit, um, and trying to sort of outline similarities and differences, but more importantly, kind of like an underlying logic uh, between all of these formats as far as deck building is concerned uh, in the hopes that you know people can understand deck building across magic formats better and you know at least for the sake of our audience you know maybe improve their own brews in cdh um, or at least think about them in a, in a different way and i think that's important for especially what we do and um, a lot of what we try to foster is this brewing. You know, we have the Brewer's Choice uh, channel or uh, channel, Jesus, episode that we did uh, just last week. And, you know, kind of, you know, we have Cobblepot who famously brews all this stuff. And, you know, I make some weird stuff and all these different things. So we all like to brew and we try to cultivate that. Um, and so we want to make sure that you guys have some consistent ideas of really what that goes into. And Cobble, we really wanted you in on this, too. Uh, because if you go all the way back, all the way back to, what was it, October, November, um, our very first episode <laughs> we did, 
um, was talking about, you know, the, the fundamentals, what your process is for, for deck building and CDH. So we really thought that he would bring a good, uh, you know, perspective to this conversation as well. Um, right. And yeah. the, go ahead, Cobble. That, that particular episode was, um, I think, talking at, at one level of, of granularity that was, I think, more concrete. And right. I think that in, in the Brewer's Choice episodes, we're going to be pretty, we're going to be, you know, very concrete because we're looking at deck lists. In, in, in this series, this is going to be more abstract and more theoretical, at least at first, because it's looking at kind of the, the underpinning theory, the underpinning kind of rules that inform the why more than the what. So when we're talking in concrete terms, we're talking about the what, and we're talking about, well, we're choosing this card instead of that card and why. And, and, and here, we're, we're thinking of more of the why kind of questions to be able to guide how it is that you even answer the things like the what. That's a fantastic way to put it. Um, you know, we, we can just... I'm still catching up on, on everything that you just said. <laughs> it's done. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that the way Cobble just put that kind of just, uh, you know, it goes to show why he was very much on like my short list of people that I, that I really wanted to, uh, to do this with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, uh, I wasn't on the list for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I and, just and host the show. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't know if I did a fantastic job uh, answering your entire question there, Callahan, about uh, kind of the, the tongue-in-cheek name of this episode, or, or this series, I should say. So uh, we, we're calling it the Grand Unified Theory of Deck Building. And uh, some of you will, you know, your ears will immediately perk up upon hearing that because you'll, you'll be familiar with the concept uh from from particle physics of, of all places and you know you might be wondering like oh why in the heck would you reference something from particle physics while talking about magic uh well admittedly it's a little bit self-indulgent -indul like there's no a doubt little. about that just a little you know just a <laughs> tiny bit um and if i've learned anything about youtube it's that you know like you really gotta have like those clickbaity names and you just gotta you gotta put those you gotta put those emojis in your thumbnails you really gotta you know, the kids love that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're, we're going for something like that. But uh, no, more, more to the point. If Jake um, Paul will do it, then we'll figure it out, right? Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, kind of the idea within physics is that um, there's this sort of theory, this, this theoretical concept, and it's, it's not um, experimentally shown. It, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been directly observed, but there's, you know, theories of um, essentially um, a way to have, and I'm putting this as simply as possible, um, and I'm not a physicist in background, you know, I, I, I'm more in like the neuroscience side and, you know, like delve into physics a little bit, but certainly not, you know, like high energy particle physics. But basically the idea is that um, all the, the main three fundamental forces uh, according to these theories in the right circumstances can be unified into one fundamental force. So like a grand unified force, if you, if you will. Um, and so the idea here with this series is that we're going to be looking at different aspects of deck building, but I want everyone and I want to 
um, kind of have everything encapsulated uh, around what we're going to be talking about today. And, you know, Callahan, what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, well, I believe what we want to be talking about today is what mi- a su- what makes a successful deck and uh, how that is, I believe, as you put it, a consistent deck. Um, and, and so when, you know, you posit this question, right, of a consistent deck. So, you know, the, the philosophy major in me um, is going to want to push you. Uh, so, so when we're defining, when we're talking about consistent and we're defining this term, what, what are we saying this means? Does this mean we're winning all the time? Does this mean we're hitting our land drops? What exactly does consistent mean in this context? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we are certainly talking about like a degree of reliability, which is like what you are touching upon. Um, you know, I think when you talk about mana bases and hitting land drops and stuff like that um that's like a basic illustrative example of consistency in deck building um you know designing a proper mana base that hits all of your colors um and also hits you know end land drops by turn x uh you know these are things that have been discussed at length by uh you know authors like frank karsten who has like at least a couple of free articles on the subject that are amazing and discuss this topic in great detail um, from you know a mathematical and probabilistic perspective, um, you know this is obviously important when we're talking about consistency, because you know when you're playing Magic, if you can't cast your spells, your deck's not a consistent deck. Uh, you know it doesn't matter what your deck looks like if you only have ten lands in it and you never make your land drops. You know you need to have right. you need to have a, a functioning mana base. I think that this is such a basic example that it's probably not worth getting into too, too much. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that it's one that kind of illustrates a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. You know, a, a big part of consistency is making sure that your deck is kind of reliably doing what it wants to be doing. And mm-hmm. that's not necessarily winning if we're looking at it from the perspective of, um, you know, like different formats or like different power levels and stuff like that, which is really, you know, where I want to open up this conversation. You know, this is this first episode is not necessarily going to be about making the winningest deck. It's going to be about making the most consistent deck. Um, and and it's going to be about the importance of having a consistent deck. I think that no matter where you look, consistency may be the most central deck building consideration. And I think that um a lot of the other things that we're going to be discussing over the course of this series can kind of be folded into this need for consistency um and you know we have a few other episodes sort of planned and we're going to hint at a few of these as we go but i think that the kind of most important message that's going to be driven home at all times is you know the link between all those topics and and consistency so you know if we're talking about competitive formats then like winning is obviously kind of probably your your most important thing and and that's what you want your deck to do consistently but if you're talking about more casual formats then there's like you know self-expression um and if or if like theming in your deck having like a theme to your deck and in that context you still want your deck to be consistently able to express its theme otherwise you're you're not doing a good job of expressing yourself right 
So, so I think that like the need for consistency clearly operates at multiple levels and these levels interact and that's kind of like what we're going to be touching upon. I think that it's such an important factor in deck building and, and in the design of magic, um, that some of the most like egregious design mistakes that wizards has ever made (laughs) ever all have to do with consistency and more specifically systematically making the game less random um you know and we can certainly touch upon some examples of that later um i would say that you know to put a a point in 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 this and to let somebody else take over the discussion a little bit from here you know consistency isn't the only deck building consideration as we will see over the course of this series but i think it's the most logical place to start while we're charting out like the grand unified theory of deck building i would agree um, one thing that I just wanted to to kind of put on top of that is, I mean, the the goal, especially in competitive, is is always going to be that you know you're 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 wanting to win, and um, you you kind of alluded to it quickly there, but I just wanted to really just kind of dwell a little bit on um, a deck. There, there's a lot of different ways for decks to win. There's a lot of different archetypes, a lot of different strategies, and for the, the consistency discussion for different decks looks different. And different decks are going to want to do their thing. I mean, uh, certain decks are going to want to achieve a certain board state consistently. Um, right. Other decks are going to want to uh, execute on a plan that doesn't really have to do with the board state, but they want to do the same thing as much as they can. Or they want to, you know... You know, burn decks want to be casting burn spells every turn. And if they can do that consistently, then they're executing according to their plan. Whereas a combo deck might be wanting to assemble a certain set of cards. And so it's going to be looking to do that as consistently as consistently as possible. So the consistency discussion is going to take a bunch of different shades, kind of depending on the the different decks and archetypes that you're considering it uh, in the context for, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Um, So that, that's just kind of come that that's going to, I think bleed through kind of each of the the different points that we talk about here. We just want to kind of keep that in mind that different types of decks are going to consider the, the, the idea and the concept of consistency in different ways. Right. Well, so since we're, you know, we're talking about all these different things, we're kind of framing this um, as a general, um, you know, discussion about deck building. Uh, Let's kind of just start off here looking at 60 card formats. Those are the ones that are played the most frequently. Well, maybe when you're building in a competitive environment, those are generally what people build for. Um, And so to achieve consistency, right... Um, what are the the things? What are the like main pieces that you want uh, to achieve consistency in those in those decks? Yeah, so mm. I I think that we could probably discuss this you know at length, and you know maybe we won't necessarily agree one hundred percent on sort of like what the most important ones to discuss are, but I think that as a start we can probably outline four main points at least from my perspective so i think that like the first kind of important one to discuss would be 
redundancy as a as a way to achieve uh, consistency the uh, another one would be you know curving out or efficiency as a way to achieve efficiency uh then you know card draw and cantrips at least in deck building are often a way to achieve consistency uh and then you know finally a, a really big one would be like tutoring specifically finding the card that you need mm-hmm. so uh, yeah so so if, okay so if we we start off um looking at the redundancy and the playset thing um obviously in 60 cards you have that advantage um uh unless you're playing vintage in which case sometimes things are restricted um but but and that is partially because of this redundancy right like they want to restrict how many times you can draw draw uh it's like what are what are the, some of the restricted cards are aren't like the mocks and restricted and vintage yeah, all um, power in vintage nine. you're going to have mock. Yeah, all the power is a lot of the tutors are going to be yeah. in vintage. They actually restrict ponder and preordain and um, preordain is maybe not, not preordained, not preordained, but uh, brainstorm. So a, a lot of the cards that are the best at increasing your your consistency um, for in, in various ways, they uh, have taken steps to reduce the amount of redundancy of those effects you can have. Right. Um, and the, you know, one of the, one of the things that we could maybe talk about as well is, you know, talking about the, the, the four, the four of rule that you have for most of the 60 card formats. That wasn't always the case when magic first started there, there really weren't rules beyond um, you had to have 40 cards in your deck and <laughs> you show up. Yeah. <laughs> Right, oh you show goodness. up with forty cards, and so they're, they're one of the the, and there's you know there's stories you know stacked EDH had had a a, a little allusion to this in, in one of their recent videos, where um, in in kind of like the the wild west of the original, you know very very early days of magic, there was magic there was how Richard Garfield intended it to be played. <laughs> Right, right. There, there was a deck that was that was called Brain Twist, and this was kind of like the the solved, mathematically solved, uh, format at the the very very beginning. And that deck actually consisted of nineteen Black Lotuses, ten Time Twisters, and eleven Brain Geysers. And the idea would be that you, you know, it the there's there's actually an article that that goes over all the math about how it had a 99.900125 chance of winning turn one um, because you would just play out all your lotuses, crack all of them, and then uh, play your brain geysers, you know, play uh, the biggest brain geyser that you can, and that's going to draw you into more black lotuses, and eventually you're going to hit this threshold where you've got enough mana to just deck your opponent. And if not, you can always time twister and then, you know, repeat the process. And there's kind of this algorithm that you follow. And it is and will always be the most consistent magic deck that there ever was. But it's also completely degenerate. And it's not fun to play against. And it's not fun to play more than once. So um, it kind of reveals the, I, I would say, kind of the boundary of where consistency gives way to uh, lack of fun 
because it's yeah. so degenerate, fun is lost. So they, you know, kind of slowly imposed these different rules to make it such that in this particular case, redundancy is limited because they right. saw that that amount of redundancy leads to degeneracy. So we can still have access to redundancy. I mean, in a 60 card in a 60 card deck, if you run four brainstorms and four ponders and free free preordains, that's, you know, 12 of your 60 cards is 20% of your deck. That's still quite a lot of redundancy of the effect that you're of looking that for. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So that's the other aspect, right? So you've got play sets and obviously in EDH, you know, we, we frequently kind of make the joke that an EDH play set is really easy to acquire. You know, I don't have to buy my four <laughs> Noble Hierarchs. I only have to buy one Noble Hierarch. Conveniently, right. not a very expensive card these days, but, uh, you know, not too long ago, you know, 48, sorry, $80 card, like something ridiculous like that. Please don't remind um, me. I used to play humans. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so I mean, on the one hand, you have play sets and, you know, you have your four ofs and stuff like that. But then there's also the potential to go beyond that by playing a similar card or a card that has a very similar effect and play, you know, you know, two more of those or four more of those, you know, however many more you want to hit that particular ratio of that effect. So I think redundancy in these terms is really easily understood because all you're doing effectively is increasing the ratio of a given card or effect relative to your entire deck. And mm -hmm. so in purely mathematical terms, if you're drawing a card every turn, you know, you're going to see your, your probability of seeing that card or that effect increases over the course of a game, you know, just by like by out of necessity, essentially. Right. Um, and, and one of the yeah. things that I know is something that people have talked about a lot is there's this frequently people talk about this rule like the rule of nine. Um, and that's, what is it? You take like nine play sets of whatever card, eat like nine different cards, you have four, or you have the play set of each of them, and then you have 24 lands, and you got a deck. Um, you know, that's kind of the, the, the deck building idea, but obviously there's a lot more to that, right? Yeah. I, I sound like I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to. Wow. It's... <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, it's a good question because I, I think that that's a heuristic that we teach to new players very, very often is, you know, mm -hmm. take nine play sets, 24 lands, and, uh, you know, essentially call it a deck. Um, but, like, once you've played Magic for a little bit, and or once you kind of understand deck building a little bit more, you realize that, like, most heuristics are kind of meant to be broken. Most rules are meant to be broken. Um and I think, you know, that's kind of like what they would teach somebody studying music, too. You know, you have to learn the rules so well, such that, like, finally, when, you're, when you've when you mastered them well enough, that's when you're allowed to break them. And that's jazz, right? Um, but, you know, when it comes to magic, you know, you have the rule of nine, kind of, as, as you put it. Uh, I think, you know, when we're talking about, like, commander as a different type of format, sometimes we talk about, like like the seven by nine, or I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but essentially, you know, a very similar concept where like you're supposed to run like nine copies of a particular effect, you know, whether it's card draw, board wipes, you know, this is the type of thing that you hear very often in, you know, on, on, on like 
uh, other podcasts uh, about EDH. Um, and, you know, these are useful for people to kind of just getting into deck building. But a lot of the time, if we're talking about, let's talk about 60 card formats more specifically. Um, obviously in vintage, that just doesn't work because you're not playing play sets of Ancestral Recall. You're not playing play sets of, of you know, the Moxin and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, we can kind of throw that rule right out, um, right out from the but start. Even- when we talk about Legacy, something that you actually see pretty often in Legacy is, you know, people will run like four Force of Wills and then like two Force of Negations. So at that point, you're already not playing nine play sets. You're playing kind of like six copies of like free counter magic um and and, you know for a variety of reasons but you want to see more free counter magic but you don't want to see so much more that you're going to play like eight copies of it you're going to play six copies of it and kind of like calculate the odds of seeing x amount for the matchups where you want to see it and then the reason why you don't just overload on it in legacy is because in some matchups you just don't want that effect so you're kind of hedging in game one against like the matchups where you don't want to have all that free counter magic that ends up being card disadvantage. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's certainly more of a heuristic than a rule, and it's it's a heuristic that doesn't apply necessarily very, very well. But I would say mm-hmm. I think it does apply very, very well to certain archetypes. Um you know, like if, one for example. Well, so if we look at Burn, for example, like that's Burn's a great example. Um, like that's just a deck that just wants to be so consistently casting like one drops, um, and just like essentially multiple one drops a turn, uh, that it's just gonna like max out on play sets of like the most efficient, and you know, spoilers. That's where we're getting. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it it just kind of wants to max out on those effects so that it mo- it it has the same game plan as often as possible and in every game possible. Right. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I I think that mid-range decks as another example would be inclined to play more of their, like, let's say disruptive cards and then some of their, like, you know, game-winning cards, perhaps that, like, cost a little bit more mana, they might play fewer than four of, right? Or they, they might vary up their suite of threats a little bit. You know, to again like hedge against like different matchups, but you know this is like moving beyond kind of like the abstract of deck building and moving more into the concrete of like how do you build your deck for a particular metagame or like for a particular format. You know these these are things that don't really fit into a very very generalist theory. Right. So. You alluded to this a little bit um, just a moment ago, but this next point that, you know, you kind of want to hit on, um, you know, is you were talking about the, the curve and efficiency and, um, you know, what what exactly are we talking about there? So magic, I think we can probably say, and, and I think like even like a lot of other, you know, quote-unquote theorists or, or writers would probably agree with this and, and i'm sure that reed duke has has written almost exactly what i'm about to say but magic is a game that's like fundamentally about managing resources you know accruing resources and then managing them after you've accrued them or or you know trying to deny your opponent resources um 
you know the the natural sort of state of the game involves a gradual development of mana but it's not necessarily like a guaranteed development of mana um because of the sort of vagaries of luck you know sometimes you're going to get mana screwed sometimes you're going to get mana flooded you're not always going to have the exact same amount of lands um what does this mean it means that you know more efficient spells which is to say cheaper to cast um because efficiency can mean a variety of things um you know you're gonna be able to cast these more reliably a, a one mana spell means that you only need to hit one land drop so it doesn't matter if you have you know one two or three lands in your opening hand you're always going to get to cast that that one mana spell but if you look at your average one mana spell and compare it with your average five mana spell the, the five mana spell is going to be much stronger it's, it's going to have much more impact on the game that's just good design um you know, you, you don't want to be casting one mana spells that warp the game around them, like, completely. Otherwise, you end up, you know, you're playing Vintage, and, like, you we're talking about Ancestral Recall. And I think that, like, everyone agrees that Ancestral Recall is, like, an absolutely absurd magic card. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you look at Vintage, Vintage is very much about just resolving Ancestral Recall. Like, the entire format is warped around resolving Ancestral Recall to a large extent. Um... But, you know, when we look at competitive decks in high-powered formats, these tend to be skewed towards lower casting costs. You know, we talked about Burn before. We talked about... Uh, well, I guess we didn't talk about this exactly, but we talked about, like, different archetypes. And, like, if we look at, like, aggro as another example, um, mm -hmm. you know, aggressive decks tend to want to be playing lots of cheap little creatures and, you know, so that they can get them on the board quickly and so that they can start chipping in for damage quickly. You know, if we look at Delver and Legacy, and to a lesser extent in Modern, um, you know, these are decks that are trying to play an incredibly efficient game, um, you know, to the point where we could almost say that their entire game plan is focused around efficiency. You know, what they want to do is they want to cast multiple cheap spells in a turn rather than ever play any spells that cost more than two to three mana. Um to some extent, this is less true now than it has been in the past. And I think that has to do with the power level of certain three mana cards that we've seen thus far. You know, cough, cough, <laughs> like Oko. Um, but, like, to a large extent, you know, we're still talking about uh, a deck that wants to play, you know, a bunch of one mana spells, then, like, a two mana threat, cough, cough, Dreadhorde Arcanist. And it just wants to use its Dreadhorde Arcanist to bring back, to recast those one-mana spells. I remember um, seeing that that card get spoiled, and I was like, this is going to be really good. And I remember yeah. a couple of people, yeah, it'll be fine. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is, like, amazing. <laughs> a card, card is absurd, and only two mana. Again, like, cheap cards that are well above rate in terms of the value that they bring to the table, um, they, they warp formats around them. That's just kind of, like, that's what efficiency right. does that's what curve does um and, and you know i feel like geez there's so much here that we can unpack where i almost feel like we could do and i think we are going to do this but i feel like we we could fit like an entire episode just on this one single point yeah right, that's I, the the plan is that we're going to do one of the future episodes just about efficiency just because it's it's such a wide um 
space to 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 look at just because it there there's a bunch of different ways to consider it it's not just about mana cost um you know you can if you're looking at you know card advantage you know the number of cards that you draw based on the mana that you're putting in you know is going to give you some sort of function of of efficiency or you know card disadvantage for an effect looking at you know force of will force of will is a very mana efficient card but it's not a card efficient card so is it efficient well yes it is and oh no it's not so there's a whole lot of ways that we can talk about a lot of that stuff and i, I don't know if talking too much on it here is going to distract from what we, we want to be talking about namely consistency yeah it's it, it, yeah. it's one of those like weird um like tunnel it's like going into wonderland right you just go down the rabbit hole and then you never come out of it it's right. there's so much to unpack there um, yeah if you want to talk about efficiency if you want to do it justice you know you need to start talking about tempo which is kind of like what what cobble was alluding to and and you know what is tempo you need to define what that is and that's already kind of like a highfalutin concept in and of itself um but uh you know you start there and you know you realize oh well is tempo just efficiency but like maybe tempo is just consistency if you like kind of deconstruct it even further i think that this will be a very very interesting topic for its own video yeah. right right we, so, we, needless we were, to we say, were, the the best part about this and is when we were planning out the series and we were planning out specifically this episode and we were looking at this part in the outline. I I have never seen our like sculpty boys only chat explode the way it did over this one bullet point. Like everybody had thoughts about it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's wide and it's deep. And it certainly I, is. I, I think it, it just kind of suffices to say that if we're going to talk about consistency, then efficiency is absolutely part of that discussion. But because it's so big, we're going to kind of defer most of that discussion to the future so that we can focus just on the discussion that is going to be uh, sitting around consistency in and of itself. We already have enough three hour, right. <laughs> three yeah. hour episodes lying around. We don't need more. Exactly. Um, so, you know, what, what is kind of the next thing, you know, we're talking about, you know, we've talked about efficiency in your curve. We've talked about redundancy in your play sets. Um, what's kind of the next layer to this whole discussion? So what I had highlighted so, before was, you know, this idea of, of like can tripping and, and card draw. Um, so first of all, what are cantrips? Um, so cantrips, you know, if, if you look at like D and D, for example, it's like literally what a spell that doesn't take up a spell slot. Um, so like, it's just kind of a spell that you can use kind of at like no cost. It, it tends to have a very kind of minor effect. Um, but within magic, it has kind of taken on the meaning of do something, generally something minor, but then draw a card. Um, so the cantrips that we tend to play are hyper efficient in the sense that you want to pay zero or one mana for them. And more importantly, the effect that we tend to care about as far as consistency is concerned are the ones that give you varying degrees of card selection. Um, 
what is card selection? Well, card selection is not, it, it, it's a form of card advantage. It's a form of like virtual card advantage. You know, you're not necessarily getting more cards in hand, but you are seeing more cards. You know, if we take Ponder as an example, you look at three cards and then you take the one of those three that you want to draw, put it on top of your deck and draw it. So you've effectively, you haven't drawn those three cards, but, you know, depending on how you sequence your turn and other cards in your hand, you know, perhaps you've effectively drawn kind of like three cards because, you know, you took the best of those three and then, let's say, used the fetch land to shuffle away the other two so that you never have to worry about them for the rest of the game. Um, in some sense, that's almost like drawing additional cards. It's not. It's not drawing additional cards, and that's why we call it card selection. But it's a form of virtual advantage because you don't have to worry about those dead draws later down the line. Um, right. Another way to think about that, yeah. too. Sorry to no, no, jump in there, but um, when we were talking about redundancy, we're increasing the amount or we're increasing the proportion of the deck that's devoted to a certain effect. And the reason why we do that is because we want to see it more often when we're looking through our deck. You know, the, the fundamental game mechanic is you see one card each turn. And by increasing the percentage of the certain type of effect that you want to see in your deck, you have a higher chance of seeing that on each of your turns when you're drawing your card. Through selection, what we're doing is we're effectively reducing the size of our deck because we're seeing more of it. So naturally, we don't need to draw into the things that we're trying to get to. You know, if it's combo, we're trying to, you know, sequence, you know, some sort of a combo scenario. Or if it's a more, you know, a gradual advantage engine, we want to make sure that we sequence our, 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 our lands in a certain way so that we consistently hit our land drops, but then be able to hit our value pieces in a, in a reliable way. Um, selection is a thing that is allowing, it's, it's virtually increasing the percentages of all of those things. Because it's allowing us, you know, in most cases, when we're looking at things like Brainstorm or looking at things like Ponder, we're, we're, we're getting to look three cards deep. So we're looking three turns into the future and being able to choose what those natural draws are going to look like so that we can plan ahead and be able to, you know, sequence the most um, effective, according to our plan, uh, sequence of turns that we're going to have and um it's 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 not as powerful as raw card draw when we're talking about card advantage but virtually being able to reduce the size of your deck is going to have a dramatic impact and that's why you see it so much across all formats yeah absolutely <clears throat> i think it's important to kind of draw a distinction between cantripping you know, card selection and just like pure redundancy. And I, you know, I think you did a good job of that, but you know, I, some people might be left thinking like, oh, well, like what is exactly the difference? Um, and to sort of like borrow from what Cobble was saying, you know, where redundancy is kind of talking about like increasing the number of like a particular card you're running, what cantrips do is that they kind of increase the redundancy and access to like every different effect in your deck you know like it's like you're now playing more lands you're also now playing more 
you know, threats. You're also now playing more tutors in, in some cases. Um, so they aren't increasing redundancy, like, per se. Um, what they're doing is that they're, they're doing their own thing. They're, they're letting you see more cards, um, and they play well with redundancy um, because, you know, a cantrip is not going to necessarily find you your one of in your deck. It's going to help you find your one of in your deck, but it's certainly going to help you find your like four ofs in your deck a lot more. Right. Absolutely. It's they're they're going to rather than relying just on the natural draw that you're getting each turn that you're trying to accentuate by increasing the percentages of cards through redundancy. What they're doing is they're letting you kind of look ahead, even though you're not drawing additional cards, you are you know, uh, giving yourself information, which is also very important, um, to, to guide what you will naturally draw in the future. So it's, it's, you're, you're virtually increasing the percentages of hitting the cards that you want um, that you're otherwise trying to do naturally just through redundancy. Yeah. So and Absolutely. I and I think we talked about this a little bit before, but I it, it, you know brainstorm obviously is like a very is a card that kind of hits both of those like notes. Uh, but another card I think of that I don't think of is many people would think of right off the bat, and maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe I'm stupid. But a Sylvan Library, um, where when you're you're playing that card and you have this opportunity, it does cost some life. Uh, but you can either draw three cards for eight life or reorder the top of your library. Um, and then maybe if you don't like one of the cards there, you have a fetch land, you can shuffle it away and get a better top deck. Um, and, and I think that's a card that do, can function as both card selection and card draw at the exact same time. You know what I mean? Like, a, mm -hmm. it, is what I'm saying making any sense whatsoever? No, absolutely. Especially that's, when you combine right. it with like fetch lands and stuff. Yeah. For sure, um, and, uh, and people I, people talk about fetch lands. I, I, it's we we should at least talk about it. Um, that there, there's I I think this this notion uh, in in some circles, you know, people well, you know, fetch lands can let you reduce the relative size of your deck, so you're you're, you're thinning your deck, so you're you're making your deck smaller, which is increasing the relative percentages of hitting the cards that you want. So running more fetch lands means that you're going to be more consistent. Um, I, I think the impact of combining fetch lands with effects like Sylvan Library and Brainstorm is light years more impactful yep. than the very minuscule effect that you get at reducing, you know, one card out of your deck at a time with however, you know, in, in the case of EDH, you know, nine nine fetch lands it's, it's not having that big of an effect but being able to kind of wipe away the what you know to be the top three cards of your deck and getting a new top three is a much more significant effect you know i think about a, a format like modern right um and a card that comes to mind that really signifies why they try to reduce some of that in in modern specifically is a card like ponder because ponder kind of fall like you know when we banned think about ponder modern. yeah yeah i mean it preordain in in ponder are both banned and modern those are technically in the modern card pool um, too. 
Yeah, Jataxian Probe. Well, in that, that kind of legacy. died. <laughs> J- Git Probe, though, in Modern was banned for a very different reason than, uh, like, Ponder and Preordain. Um, yes and no, right? Well, like, I mean, it, 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 the, not to go off on a tangent, uh, but, I mean, Git Probe was banned in Modern. I, I'm not as fluent in Legacy, but Modern is something I pay very close attention to generally. Um is it, it was banned specifically because with with uh what's with um why am like I the, blinking the Phoenix text, Infect. Right? Well it was yeah. it was it was it was Phoenix, it was a combination of Phoenix and like infected kind of died off for a bit. But what it did was it gave you perfect information about your opponent's hand, so you knew exactly when you were able to get off. And and so that is to a some degree what we're talking about and you do draw off of it and it is a cantrip so there is that layer of it but the reason it got banned was not just because of that card selection ability ponder on the other hand absolutely dead um preordain absolutely dead um and so you know you look at an effect like serum visions well why is serum visions legal and why preordain is banned uh, serum visions is literally preordained backwards um mm-hmm. and because instead of the draw or be- instead of looking at the top two and then kind of deciding what you want and then you can put them on the bottom and then draw it you have to draw first and then set up your next draws and the the amount of impact that has is incredibly huge um you know anybody who's played uh modern can tell you, uh, you know, and I, I think a friend of the show, David Snavely, who's one of like the few really good blue red gift storm players that I know, um, you know, will tell you the sequencing of those cantrips. Like you, you play sleight of hand before you play serum visions or whatever, depending on what's in your hand and what you're trying to do. And there's all the sequencing involved where preordain and ponder, you don't have to do that, right? Like, sort and of. so well, there is, there's definitely. They're sequencing, but like, but the, the amount of that mattering is substantially reduced as to where with sleight of hand and, uh, serum visions, there is so much luck of the draw with those two cards, as opposed to the other ones where you really have a fair amount of card selection before your draw, um, and so that, that's just a whole nother layer to this. And I'm sure we could probably, I don't think we're doing a whole one on this, but we, we could probably do a whole thing on this, <laughs> um, but not to linger too much. Um, you know, we, we've kind of talked about these last three points of card draw. We've talked about, you know, your curve and efficiency and uh, you know, the, the redundancy portions uh, and, you know, coming to this, final piece that we want to talk about here is you know the tutors and what makes tutors so important um to make your deck consistent that way people really know you know why tutors are good i feel like people have this like gut sense of why it's good but to have it clearly defined i think is very helpful yeah um i mean i guess just the easiest way to put this is, you know, what could possibly make a deck more consistent than a card that literally reads, search your deck for whatever card you need at this exact moment. Like, I I think that 
it just like that's hands down the most consistent thing you know there is right um so you know looking beyond just that kind of very very simple way of putting it um every format has kind of like its own list of playable um and and its own list of played tutors um but what's interesting about tutors in other formats is that they're not nearly as ubiquitous you know with the exception of fetch lands but fetch lands as tutors you know we kind of touched upon them you know they're they're broken because they make other cards more broken like cantrips but also they make your mana base like kind of like nothing like like you can play five color mana bases with fetch lands and shocks or duels and it's kind of almost effortless um so you know they're they're problematic for multiple respects um but we, we won't touch upon them for for the moment uh what's interesting though is that there's a lot of decks like in modern in legacy you know even to a certain extent but less like in vintage that <laughs> it's less in vintage for yeah, sure yeah but that they just don't play tutors <laughs> like so that's that's an interesting conversation in and of itself i think yeah right. um, so different so co- coming back to the different archetypes because i think that's one of the things that often is going to drive your need to have tutors or not i mean so like like you were saying a, a tutor is 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 sort of like extra redundancy but more so you could look at a tutor as an extra copy of whatever card it is that you know you want to have but in some cases it it's potentially an extra copy of many cards that are in your deck so it's you, you, you don't it's not something that's that's really a redundant piece it's 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 something that's much more than that uh, depending on on what the archetype of of the list is doing if you're a combo deck and the thing you want to do is to assemble a plus b and win then in those cases your tutors are basically going to be you know an extra copy of a or b and they're they're kind of a very linear uh, concept Whereas there's other archetypes, um, thinking like toolbox kind of strategies, for instance, that were hey now uh, you're now you're talking my language, right, right. <laughs> Where um, a, a tutor actually becomes much more powerful because it's it's much more situational, and it is the best thing that you need at any point in the game based on the board state, and it allows you to kind of have these you know emergent. Um, choices about how it is that you're going to, to to interact with the table. So there's a lot of decks that don't fit into either of those molds. If you're, I mean, to some degree, storm decks, you know, ostensibly, yes, they they do have a finisher that they're looking for. And so some will run tutors to kind of look up their finisher, but a lot of storm decks won't necessarily do that either because they're fine just committing all of their real estate as, as far as deck slots are concerned to just the, the engine pieces of you know rituals and cantrips and making that as consistent as possible. And, and a reason for that is that tutors aren't free. There is a cost to running tutors. 
And you can you can illustrate that by saying, well, it, let's suppose that we went back to the the Wild West that we were talking about before with Brain Twist, and those lists they didn't run 19 copies of Demonic Tutor, and there's a reason why they didn't, because you do need to have a density, a sufficient density of the the plan that you want to to execute on. And most lists need to have a certain amount of their deck that is committed to what their game plan is doing. And having too many tutors is a problem because those tutors are basically going to add, uh, they're, they're going to make the thing that you're going to get less efficient. Right. A demonic, demonic a demonic tutor yeah. is, is adding two mana to the card that it's replacing, basically. Right. And yep. So you, it, you're, you're balancing your access to something. You're balancing your, you know, the, the consistent nature of finding the thing you're looking for, trading that off with adding two mana or whatever mana that you're adding to it. You know, maybe you're, uh, in the case of top deck tutors, you know, you're, that trade-off is, it's, it's a cheaper tutor, but now you've got one more layer of interaction before you can actually get to it. You have to do something to get it off your top deck. Um, or you spent a card. Right. Yeah. There, there, there's, there's a cost to it. So while naively someone could say, well, I wanna, I, I've got a, a combo deck, I've, you know, I've got my one copy of A, one copy of B, and you know, the rest is all tutors, that doesn't wind up being a good deck. And there, there's reasons for that. So um, I, I think that they, the tutors are extremely important and we'll, we'll talk about... Right now, we're focusing a lot on 60-card format. And oh, yeah. We'll, we'll circle, ba- circle back around to right. uh, EDH. When, when we circle yeah. back, some of this stuff is going to make more sense. Why we see so much more uh, leaning on tutors in EDH than in 60-card formats. There's reasons for that. Right. And we're going to get into that soon. And so, you know, like, like you were alluding to there... Um, you know, circling back and looking at, you know, we're talking specific. You know, we are we are a CEDH podcast. So for for those people listening, the the general context of what we're going to be talking about is within this com- competitive environment. Uh, but these can still affect the way you think about, you know, EDH, all these different things. Uh, regular EDH, I guess. Uh, maybe it's not correct mm-hmm. to say. I don't know what the right linguistical term is, uh, but. Standard EDH, EDH. EDH, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, When you're building that way or with a competitive mindset, I suppose, um, you know, when when we're looking at obviously a big hurdle that we got to catch right immediately is we're playing a singleton format and we're playing 100 cards, not 60 cards. So automatically the variance is going out the wazoo. So we're already throwing the whole consistency thing out the window um, and so what is it in a competitive, you know, thing? What'd you say? I, I was saying by design, that was part yeah. of the design. That was part of, that was one of their design goals was to reduce consistency. Right. Because right. they wanted a different experience from what the day in day out of the competitive scene was when they were, you know, establishing this as, as a pastime. And, and one of the so, things sorry. I alluded to before is, you know, and, and what you just alluded to right now is that consistency is such a central part to just the design of magic in general. Like, the element of randomness that exists in every game is what makes this game fun to come back to. 
time and time again. If this was, you know, essentially like chess, I don't know that it would have the same appeal. Um, and, and it just doesn't make sense that it could be like chess because it's constantly changing. You know, chess, right. I think its appeal is that it doesn't change. Um, and so the skill comes from being able to, uh, and, and, and its appeal is that it doesn't have randomness. So, you know, the, the, the skill aspect of that is being able to see many, many turns or many, many moves kind of into the future and, and plan accordingly. Um, whereas, you know, magic, you know, you can do that to some extent, but also maybe your draws just don't work out. Right. Or like, you know, maybe an opponent brought a deck that like happens to be playing like one card that just like happens to be the perfect counter for your deck. Right. Like, you know, these are the things that, that make magic a compelling game and make it different from a lot of other games. Um, you know, if we talk about what I had mentioned before is that historically wizards has printed effects that remove or like reduce variance, uh, and increase consistency to such an extent that they kind of ruin the experience. And I think a recent example that is companions, right? Um, you know, companions, you always having access to them, and them essentially always being in your hand um, and, and you know, you being able to then build your entire deck around them. Uh, for people in competitive contexts, you know, that kind of ruined to some extent the experience for them. And, you know, some people might say, wait, but isn't like having constant access to a, a companion kind of like commander? Um, but it's, it's not, right? Because in 60 card formats, you had the sort of double threat of your deck being incredibly consistent because of all these points that we've talked about, you know, in terms of redundancy, in terms of, um, you know, efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also had that eighth card in hand that you suddenly built your entire deck around. So like the issue with companions was kind of like that. It was like commander without the singleton rule. So to come back to this, you know, what is, what is like the deck building rule slash gameplay dynamic of commander that makes it more compelling? you know, there's to, some consistency, but then a whole lot of inconsistency. One right. thing to add to your point um, there too is, and not to go back too far on this, but you know, like with Commander, and I think this is something that not enough people really, I, I think people take for granted how impactful this is, um, is the, um, the, the color identity restriction. And, you know, when you're talking about um, you know, part or what is it? Uh, companions that they tried to approximate uh, the color identity restriction through different, you know, deck building restrictions with depending on what companion you had, right? Well, what the problem is is that you were still playing, f- you, you still had multiples and you could play whatever color you wanted, so you still had access to all the different stuff. I think a really good example is in 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 Commander. You know, I play a, a deck. One of my favorite decks is Joyra uh, Weatherlight Captain. And good grief, if I had access to all five colors, that deck would be incredible, right? Um, but it's a blue-red deck, and so this is where that redundancy and that consistency plays a piece into that too, right? Is because you know, in order to find the redundancy, right, of your effects, you got to dig a little deeper in Commander, right? Maybe another way to put that is um, speaking to color. So 
to, to maybe step back just for a second just to give this context. The, the way that Commander is inhibiting consistency is in, in, in two, two different axes, okay? So on, on, on one axis, you've got the, the number of cards per deck. So instead of 60 cards, you have 100 cards, which, I mean, if you're looking, if you're looking at, a, at, a, at a ponder in a 60-card deck, ponder is looking at 5% of your deck. And if you're looking at a 100-card deck, it's looking at 3%. I mean, that, that might not seem consequential, but that's a significant difference. And when you have the, the other axis here of, of, of not having four ofs but having singleton, what you're doing is you're, you're making it much more difficult to see as much of your deck. And um, what it's making, the, 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 the rule is still the same as far as drawing one card per turn. So you are each turn seeing either through natural draw or even through cantrip effects, you are seeing much less of your deck. And because you can't do four ofs of the cards, you are forced to have redundancy through similar effects, which are often going to be spread across colors. So let's say, for example, you wanted to have kind of like a wheels strategy, which is a popular thing. Um, If you want to try to do that outside of red... Well, all of a sudden, you're kind of, you know, cutting your your number of wheels that you have access to in half or more because, you know, not only are you limited by the singleton rule, you're also limited by having access to color. So that I think that's a really good point, Callahan, to, to mm-hmm. bring up because it it definitely inflects on the ability of people. Otherwise, you know, if if everyone could run all of the tutors, you know, the, all of the one mana tutors, they would do that regardless of what color. And um, the the way that color identity rules impose that constraint um, makes some color combinations much better than others. I think I'll, yes. I'll just say. Mm-hmm. Because they're able to be much more consistent. Right. Blue has, yeah. has a lot of self-consistency with the types of effects that allow consistent game plans because blue is the color that gives you a lot of your card advantage. It's the color that has a lot of card selection as well. Do you want to talk about that, Pongo? Yeah, well, I think we're getting maybe a little bit ahead of ourselves here. (laughs) Um, You know, I kind of want to come back to this notion of like, you know, EDH play sets. And I I do think you touched upon this pretty well. Um, But like, certainly... You know, when, when we're talking about like a single, you know, you get to run one copy of each card. Um, you know, you you look for redundancy in other ways, and uh, you know, to come to your back to your blue example, uh, blue is a great case for for either one really, right? Because blue has such a depth, for example, of solid interaction, um, such that you can play the like the whole counter spell suite in blue, and like fill out a major chunk of your deck, and know that like you've got adequate redundancy for that effect you know protecting your combo interacting with just about anything your opponents can do um that other colors won't naturally have right like certainly not white certainly not green um they're not going to be able to play nearly as as high a density or as much redundancy in terms of their effective interaction for dealing with literally anything 
or or just about anything uh you know particularly relevant uh within the context of well CEDH in particular and in EDH it's a little bit different because um you know perhaps counter magic is a little bit less crucial but um I, I, I still think that, you know, to a large extent, like you, you are talking about even within, you know, more casual circles, um, counter spells in many respects are so much more powerful than other forms of interaction, you know, removal in particular, because so many cards, so many, you know, creatures, for example, um, you know, but other, other card types as well offer immediate value. Um, you know, a creature in many cases has a spell staple to it because of its enter the battlefield effect such that, you know, if that card hits play, the damage is already done. Whereas a counter spell keeps you at relative parity because, you know, sure, like, you know, in one case or the other, you're spending a spell to interact, but in one case, your opponent didn't extract some value out of their card. Um, and, you know, I think we can come back to like cantrips and card draw within CEDH perhaps after we talk about tutors um you know I, sure. I i do think that cantrips and card draw there's a lot to say about that um and certainly within the context of cedh and i and i think so like within this redundancy thing though and this is something that i want to touch on is um you know so let's say you know and you mildly touched on this um well you didn't mildly you you did touch on this so, you know, you, you brought up earlier how in Legacy you'll see people playing, like, four Force of Wills and two Force of Negations, right? Um, and you can just load up on, you know, the the good counter spell that you want to be on. Um, you know, in, in Modern for a while it was Mana Leak. Uh, now a lot of people, depending on the decks, on Force of Negation and different things. Uh, but you, you can lean on one card because you can play multiples of them or two cards within edh now you have to have like 12 cards like you know i I talk about like a i think uh control lists um thinking of like uh like four color rashmi i guess it's curious control is the proper the proper name right um is that a deck anymore I, I play it. Um, don't let Sick hear you say that. Um, he, might, he might be the person who agrees the most. I mean, it's still on the database, so as long as I, it's, I think, as that, long as it's there. But I, yeah, I, I mean, th- I, I joke, this is, yeah. But I think that deck attacked like the creature meta, right? So that, right. that's where I'm coming from. Go ahead. But you know, we're we're talking about um, kind of how. You know, you would play like four counter spells or whatever, or two counter spells in, you know, one v one sixty card. And I'm looking at the four color Rashmi list, and we're talking one, two, three, uh, four, five, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, uh, twelve, depending on how you define a counter spell. Um, I mean, you're talking about 12 different cards that are replacing four effectively. Um, and this is, this is something that, um, we're going to discuss, I would 
and I think this is really goes as a good lead in. And I teased this last week as we're, we were talking about this iconic deck building challenge where we had to look at like these iconic lists from uh, Magic's history and trying to translate them into CDH. And, you know, you, you would see this where they would play these four ofs of, you know, I'm doing prison right now. Well, there's four of, of Mishra's workshop in, in shops, right? Well, how do I account for in a, a one in this 100-card singleton format? How do I account for the fact that, okay, so I can't get three Mishra's workshops out onto the battlefield, right? Um, how do I account for this? How do I increase my ability and my my uh my consistency on getting this effect and getting that into play does that make sense when what i'm knocking on absolutely certainly yeah as a question absolutely and it's and it's one of those things to me where you have to play like it, it makes you have to look at effects that you want and see them as play sets right you know so you have like your play set of draw spells so like in in my mind the way i've i kind of conceptualize it is instead of having play sets of cards uh we have like play sets of effects that right. we want i think that's um, that's 100 accurate i think that um you know the command zone for example when they talk about deck building and, and i touched upon this before as well you know they talk about trying to get that redundancy of particular effects when you're building let's say, uh, kind of like a more mid, you know, even high-power EDH deck um, and, and and lower power naturally where, you know, you have certain effects that you will want in those contexts and mm-hmm. so you just play more of them, right? Like maybe not every card can be Ancestral Recall. So, you know, maybe you start playing, you know, a few draw spells that are a little bit less good, you know, like Mystic Remora, for example, that being said, maybe maybe Mystic Remora is better than Ancestral Recall in our format, um, but I suppose that's a conversation for a different day. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that this, and I kind of wanted to bring this up, and I kind of want to you know keep touching upon this and keep hammering this home. Um, I think this idea of redundancy applies even in like the lowest power, like non-optimized EDH. You know, if you take like kind of like a meme deck, for example, you know, like like i don't know what's like the best meme deck in, in edh like people sitting in ladies chairs looking left what's that ladies looking left ladies looking left you know you need to have a certain amount of ladies looking left to really like hammer the point home that that's what your deck is <laughs> you know right. so like if, if you're gonna have a theme for your edh deck it, you know you've, you've got to really stick to that theme you've got to have enough of that effect such that like people understand that that's what the, the the jig is you know like that's what the, the the joke is and that's kind of the point of your deck um you know if you show up and you say like oh well this is like i don't know my group hug deck and like you're not really playing any group hug type cards and like can you say that like you're failing is it really a group hug deck yeah you're, well i mean you're failing in your in your deck building and in your self-expression right like if you want it to be that but you're not playing enough of that effect then you're not going to do it consistently enough. And so your deck is simply right. not that. So, you know, even at no matter what level of power you're talking about, consistency, I think, is the most important thing, whether or not it's for the sake of winning or for the sake of expression, as is the case in like lower power EDH. You know, you've got to think like, how am I 
doing this thing reliably and and you know obviously variance um deck variance is like the sort of opposite side of the coin right of consistency that's an innate aspect of of the game and you know we talked about it before how like you know we try as we may to like get rid of it you can never get rid of it entirely otherwise this game would be boring and uh otherwise cobble wouldn't die to mana crypt triggers seriously oh my (laughs) goodness that game i i think that um you know i keep coming back to this example of of the companions because i think that like it's probably the most egregious case where like wizards of the coast forgot what makes their own game good right like there's there's even there's like an article written by mark rosewater and i can't remember what year it was and what the context exactly was i think though that it was like they were talking about a mechanic it was an article essentially talking about like the design file for a mechanic that was kind of like proto companion and it had like a funny anecdote or i'm not sure you know if it's like a real anecdote or you know like if it's kind of just like you know a tall tale meant to kind of illustrate this point but the idea was that like i think and i'm paraphrasing here but like they had if i'm not mistaken an intern or something you know like play testing this new set like overnight or whatever like all day um and like it ended up being like such a long play testing session that you know like maro uh or whoever was watching them play test uh the, these cards uh he you know they had to go away and then you know when finally they came back you know what they what they saw was like you know the interns that were playing with these cards were just gone and like what they had left is like a message and the message just said like you know you are killing this game <laughs> like do not please, ever design please do not. cards like this because if this is like the future of magic we don't want to be part of it like deck variance is that important um right. and and yet here we are you know in 2021 and and companions had to be kind of nerfed off of the face of the earth because somehow somewhere along the way wizards forgot that lesson it's yeah. interesting while we're talking kind of uh, in in comparative terms between 60 card and and edh uh one of the things that i, I we we haven't touched on yet is is the topic of sideboards mm-hmm. where um sideboards are are something that cause the consistency of 60 card decks to go way up and the right. lack of them the lack of them in edh uh introduces a huge amount of variance and lowers consistency as long as we're uh you know presuming that people are running cards that would be considered sideboardish cards so mm-hmm. the the types of cards that you include to deal with the circumstances of well if we're running into this particular deck you know you know the the people who run you know the graph diggers cage or the people who are running their cursed totem or 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 whatever to deal with possible opponents that might not actually materialize you know having slots right silver bullet slots um do not really hit 60 card decks because they're tucked away in your sideboard so if if they're not relevant to the game that you're playing 
you're, you're, you're never going to pull them out of your sideboard. So you're not going to see them and you're not going to draw into them and have them be dead when right. you're wishing for them to be something else. In the case of EDH, we don't, we don't have that. And, you know, we could have the discussion about whether or not to have silver bullets, at, you know, in CDH decks. Uh, it's metagame calls and, and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, if the, the, the fact that we don't have access to sideboards is, is just another way that the consistency of, of EDH decks is hemmed. And it's not necessarily a negative thing, but it's, it's something that you need to understand uh, and consider so that you can understand how to overcome it if what your goal is, if your object in, in your EDH play is to have optimized, consistent gameplay, um, where you want to be looking for ways that you can reduce that variance and right. overcome the, the, the forces that are, that are constraining your ability to act on the, the game plan that you have designed very reliably. That, and that's certainly a point that applies, I think, a lot more to uh, CEDH in particular, right? Right. Because, you know, in, in, in lower power ADH, you're less concerned about having the perfect answer for, you know, some random strategy. You know, like, I, I think that a lot of those decks are kind of built with the mindset of, like, oh, well, if somebody does their thing, as long as it's, like, not happening all the time, like, super, super fast, um, then it's okay. So that's, a, you know, another way where, like, in, in some sense, there's this kind of, like, um, understanding of consistency and, and kind of, like, a reversal of consistency. So when I kind of, like, mentioned the thesis earlier, earlier of consistency being the most important thing, um, you know, my, my goal was to be kind of sneaky and say that, like, you know, your deck shouldn't necessarily be consistent but consistency should be your consideration at all times and so in a lot of cases your your consideration might be being less consistent and i think that that applies in in edh as well um you know but but you know probably we're getting into more of a, a question of power level and 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 win conditions at that point and I, and i think we you know certainly hint hint we will we will talk about win conditions over the course of this series and like right probably we'll have this conversation uh, when we talk about win conditions and uh, making sure that, you know, your win condition is appropriately consistent for for your power the, level, your power level, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, right. Um, I kind of want to move on. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I was just gonna say that your 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 choices of win condition are going to play into the consistency of the deck. Yeah. So right. Um, and. We can just leave that part there. It's 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 part of the consistency discussion, but again, that's one of those things that we're going to tackle on its own, just because it's sufficiently big. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's so broad, but but again, the kind of idea behind this series is that everything we're going to be talking about needs to be understood from this sort of initial perspective of consistency, and you know whether or not it's maximizing consistency or whether or not it's grappling with consistency. Um, in such a way as to limit it to a certain degree. Um, you know, it's it's really just about th that consideration. Uh, but on the topic of consistency, why don't we move <laughs> on to uh, discussing tutors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so with tutors, and we're, you know, as we're getting into with CDH, 
Tudors is, is is odd in my mind because you have like these two different class of tutors. Um, you have like the court of calling, the finale of devastations, um, and for me, I I used to play a lot of like uh, like uh, chord decks and modern and uh, pod decks and those sorts of things, um, and so I can run for Court of Callings, for Finale Devastations, and, you know, use those to chain together my win conditions. Um, you know, and in, and so in EDH and in CDH, this is, I feel like the tutors really hit CDH more than any other power level of EDH because we're, we're searching for that consistency, we're searching for that win. Um, you know, the tutor side of that is one of those things where you know, you want it to be good, but there's an asterisk there. And I think there's something that, um, you know, we can touch on is, is like, why is Imperial Seal worth playing, but not Grim Tutor? You know what I mean? Right. Right. So may maybe before we get too far into that, it it's worth just kind of retracing just a little bit that given the constraints that we have in EDH, where we have 100 card decks and we have singleton uh, constraint for, for, for deck building, what that means is when we're just naturally looking at our for-each-turn draw, the likelihood of seeing the things that we want, depending on our archetype, are going to be vastly smaller than what we're going to see in a 60-card. Because if you, if you look, for instance, let's say... Let's say that you wanted to find a cantrip, okay? And you're 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 playing a Xerox deck, and um, you have access. Let's say that you're allowed to play four ofs, ponder, preordain, and brainstorm. In a sixty-card world, that's twenty percent of your deck if you're doing four of each of those. So you've got a twenty percent chance every natural draw of seeing one of those cards. On the flip side, when we're looking, if we're just looking at those three cards and we're only allowed to have one of each of those in EDH, instead of 20% of our deck being committed to that, we've got 3% of our deck that is represented in that way. So in order to consistently be able to, 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 to hit those things, um, yes, we, we have to, you know, take subpar, you know, uh, stand-ins that are, that are look-alikes for, for those types of effects, but also um, we, we need ways to see more of the deck. So that is why tutors become so much more important uh, in order to break down the, the constraints of variants that are imposed by the deck-building rules of, mm -hmm. of EDH. And something that's, that's interesting, too, is that um, for the number of lookalikes that you might have for any given type of card that you want to have represented in your deck, it's, it's amazing, you know, as more and more tutors are, are printed year after year, we have a much higher density in a lot of cases of tutors available to us than maybe the actual effect that we're, we're trying to represent in our deck. So, um, for instance, going back to like the wheels example, you know, Really, there's 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 three, maybe four or five serviceable wheel effects 
that we you know kind of have in, in our in our metagame, and most of the the decks that are playing those are going to be on at least nine tutors, if not more. So what what we actually see here, which is different from what we saw in sixty card, where sixty card you know you partly because of of restrictions and you know being only being able to to, to run one copy of certain tutors, but the, the the tutor density is much lower than the actual cards that you want to 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 see in your deck. Um, we have that flipped here in EDH because it's it's like all of our cards are restricted. So in order to see the effect that you want, tutors the 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 value and importance of tutors is is magnified. Uh, you know, uh, much much. Uh, to it to, to a, a point of, of of being vastly more important for you mm-hmm. to be able to consistently act on your game plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we look again at the sort of um, you know casual quote unquote EDH and CEDH divide as far as tutors are concerned, um, one one important thing I guess that we could look at would be like the uh, Wizards like player psychographics. You know, you've got Timmy, Johnny, and Spike, where Timmy likes to play, you know, like massive, like, you know, big spells that are like super flashy, you know, like, what is it like that, that new dinosaur that was printed that just has cascade, 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 cascade. <laughs> I can't remember how many times it cascades, but you know, that's, that's possibly the ultimate Timmy card, right? Because you play I thought that, you were going right? to bring up Colossal Dreadmaw. Jeez. Colossal Dreadmaw oh. is the spikiest card. Don't even start. Um <laughs> um but but yeah so cascade 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 like that's you know that's incredibly random right like this we're talking about a player i think who plays that card who in a lot of respects unless they're trying to you know they're going to go ahead and combo that with like something you know a top deck manipulation or something something like that which is certainly a super valid way to play cascade type effects that you see in competitive formats. So, you know, cascade is not inherently a random mechanic, but it's a beautiful mechanic because it can be played either way, depending on, on how you want to play it as an individual and how you want to handle consistency and how you want to grapple with it. But, you know, more to the point, um, you know, if we're talking about tutors specifically, Timmy is probably not going to play a lot of tutors because Timmy, Timmy doesn't want to play tutor tribal. You know, like when, when Timmy is playing his EDH deck, he doesn't want to like end the game um, and, and have the person he was playing with say like, that was a really cool deck, but I don't really get what you were doing because all you did was tutor a bunch of times. Like what's, what's the theme of your deck? Like, are you playing, you know, like ladies tutoring left or are you playing ladies looking left? Um, but if we take like Johnny as an example... Uh, Johnny's probably going to play a lot more tutors. Um, Johnny, by contrast, is somebody who, you know, is more willing to win than Timmy or, you know, more willing to do something that's like broken or like a little bit more, um, you know, let's say, you know, kind of degenerate than, than Timmy. Um, but but in, in a lot of respects, like wants to make it be really wild and crazy you know and wants to see like interesting interactions between cards so you know like the johnny card you know that like really i think you know immediately like would jump to mind would be i don't know like some like not super optimal combo 
but like a game winning combo anyway. They um, want to build a Ruby Goldberg machine. Yeah, exactly. They That's what they want, and they want to see it go off. And they want to see it go right. off. And usually that means winning, right? Like, or it means like extracting so much value that you end up winning. Um, and and this player, it I doesn't think is, have to though. They, but they don't have to um, win, right? It just has to happen. Um, but they right. they want their deck to happen more consistently. They want that to happen, so they're more likely to play tutors, I would think. But right, you know, their deck is going to be limited in consistency because. You know, and we're going to get into this in future episodes. You know, their chosen win condition might have some issues. That being said, they're going to consistently try to do that thing that is inherently somewhat inconsistent, um, and and they're going to be happy about that. So, and and you know, maybe they managed to do it in a lot of games. You know, with a certain degree of consistency, but depending on what that thing is, you know, even if they do it every game, it doesn't necessarily mean that their deck is more powerful. So we can we can right. certainly talk about a dissociation between power level and consistency just by virtue of looking at like Timmy and and Johnny and then you know like comparing it with Spike. You know, Timmy might always play his dinosaurs every game, but like maybe the dinosaurs are just not that powerful compared to like what, what Johnny's doing. Um, and you know, maybe Johnny manages to build his Rube Goldberg machine every game, but maybe it's not like the most, you know, game winning Rube Goldberg machine ever, right? Maybe Maybe he's playing like I don't know. A good example is like some kind of like Brago like value blink deck where you know he's like getting like so much card draw and he's like tutoring thirty times a turn and like you know he's got like all kinds of stuff on the board. But then he loses to you know Oracle Consult and he's like, what the heck? Like I spent all this time building this thing and you just won. Um, and and maybe he does that every game, but it's not inherently powerful despite being consistent. Then when we get to Spike, right. that's where we reach the culmination of consistency and power. And that's where you start to see decks that, you know, you can almost call tutor tribal, right? Like the theme of the deck is tutors. Um, and I feel like probably some number of people, you know, feel free to comment on this video. You know, maybe they, for whatever reason, ended up at a tournament playing EDH and they brought their CDH deck and somebody brought... Uh, you know, a more casual deck, not fully understanding that people were going to bring their EDH, their, their CEDH decks. And at the end of the game, that player said, like, what was the point of that deck? Like, how was that fun doing the same thing every time? You know, you're just playing a million tutors and winning. Like, I don't get it. And, and you know, that's perfectly valid. I'm not trying to say that that's not a valid way to look at EDH. You know, the whole idea of this series is to talk about how different expressions of, of EDH and deck building um, can be perfectly valid. But when we talk about tutors and their effect on consistency, certainly um, that is, I would say, at its most intense with Spike, you know, at the CEDH level of play where, you know, you don't particularly care that tutors are a little bit less efficient or that they're kind of, you know, you know re reducing a sense of like spirit to your deck or you know your deck may lose like some kind of sense of expression what you're trying to do is cast Thassa's oracle cast demonic consultation and if you have to do that for five mana instead of three mana that's that's okay like that's that's still pretty good because you won the game and what's five mana anyway right you know timmy timmy didn't even manage to cast a spell by that point Right. I, I I think what 
I think the the way that I heard it one time was, you know, if if Timmy plays ten games and loses all of them, but gets to create, you know, gets to cast a really big creature in every one of those games, he'll be happy. Right. You know, Johnny, if he plays ten games and doesn't win any of them, but gets to do something really cool and you know like get all the pieces to fit together and have them do something really really exciting he'll be happy if if spike plays 10 games and wins nine of them he's going to be pissed off because he didn't because he didn't win 10 games man oh man do i feel that sometimes (laughs) i don't know where i fall because i always feel like i fall somewhere in between spike and johnny (laughs) which i think a lot of cdh players do to be fair yeah Absolutely. Um, I I, th- I think an important thing there too is um, wh- when you're when you're looking, especially more casually, I think you you actually embrace the lack of consistency. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if, if you've ever heard at. someone right, if you if you've heard somebody who uses the word shenanigans, <laughs> like what what are they talking about? There's like I I don't even know. I'm just gonna I'm gonna do something and and. And it's going to be fun, and I don't know what it's going to be. It's that 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 is looking for the fun in an emergent way that is unexpected, and it's kind of like it, it it's kind of aimless, you know. It's like, well, I, I I don't know what my deck's going to do. I don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to do something, and I'm going to have fun with it. Um, that is a valid way for people to to play the game. It's not a consistent way to play the game but consistency doesn't mean that you're you know succeeding or not at having fun right it's and it's not about having fun at the end of the day um it's about winning guys come on uh i thought this was a cdh CDH player that just just clip that you know it's not about having fun at the end of the day it's really just about winning is the implication right but but um, no, con- consistency in a lot of respects, I would say, is, and 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 I think you raised a great point, Cobble, that like, um, the opposite side of consistency, which is, um, you know, variability, um, var- variance and stuff like that, can be equally um, gravitated toward. But I, you know, I, I would say that you know, light, like light doesn't. You know, like darkness doesn't exist without light. You know, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. That that sort of analogy, um, right? Yin and yang. Yin and yang, exactly. Um, when we're talking about a lot of more casual EDH players, they are building their deck, and and if they're looking to kind of improve their deck building and stuff like that, um, the lesson. The, the, the important lesson is if you know you're building for a theme or something like that and you're not just trying to build kind of a random pile of cards that is going to you know not necessarily do a thing every game um or is going to like do wildly different things every game um you know that that's certainly one way to go and uh you know typically i would say that those decks tend to fall into lower power levels just by virtue of uh you know a variety of factors um, but you know, if you're if you're trying to stick to a theme, um, you know, you you certainly want to be building your deck with consistency in mind. Um, even even if your goal for a game is not to have the same game occur every time, 
right? Like you want it to be meandering, like you put it, you still want people to get that that's what your deck was doing. Um, mm -hmm. or, or, you know, perhaps you're building around your commander and you're looking for synergies and stuff like that. Um, the power level might not be incredibly high because like maybe what you're doing is you're just casting a bunch of vampires that are two ones and you're playing Edgar Markov and making one ones, but you're not doing anything super broken with those one ones other than having, you know, a ton of dudes in play and like trying to pump them and stuff like that. You know, but but you want people to get that the theme is vampires, so you're putting a ton of vampires in your deck to make it more consistent in that respect. Um, you know, I, I would say that players who have, like, no theme whatsoever or no expression in their EDH deck are, like, even at low power levels, very much the minority. I think, I think a, a huge appeal of commander to players is, you know, you see a commander that speaks to you and you kind of want to build around that commander following a particular theme or you know you have like a sort of more bottom-up theme like ladies looking left and in which case maybe you need to find a commander that is a lady looking left <laughs> timna well this has been this has been such an interesting conversation i'm excited as we move into the the future to see where the series goes um, because clearly we have a lot of very, and this is, I love talking with you guys because I always, I always feel like I'm learning something after we record, um, you know, it, it I, I think what we got here is really interesting and I'm really excited to see where it goes and to see how people, you know, respond to it. Um, you know, from you guys, do you have any final thoughts, you know, kind of as we're wrapping up here? Well, one thing that I just wanted to say was that um, when when we're having these kinds of theoretical discussions, and you know, for this series especially, um, it's it's not like well, now we've talked about consistency, and we'll close the book on that and move on. Um, all, all of these things are all, all of these 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 forces, these the kind of these fundamental core, forces of deck building, yeah, right. You know, these these fundamental essences of of, of deck building. Um, these things all interweave with one another. Sort of mm -hmm. like how we, we talked about efficiency and, you know, we talked about win cons and, you know, th th those things are, we can't talk about consistency without mentioning those things. And what's going to happen is as we go further down, we're going to have to come back and mention consistency again because they're inextricable. These things are related to each other and we've, we've kind of got a baseline foundation to, to understand what consistency means when we're talking about it and then now we'll be able to start moving on to some other discussions that are going to layer on top of that and then each one of those things is going to kind of be informed by the previous discussions and we'll be able to bring those discussions forward kind of in a more rich way so that once we actually get to a point where we're you know we're still very abstract once we start talking more concretely we can talk about those things that are abstract and they'll make more sense and that our ability to reason about them will will be easier because we'll understand kind of the, the theory behind them. So learning the theory can help with the concrete. And you just kind of have to, like you were saying, you know, for the, your music analogy, you got to got to do your rudiments first. And then um, that'll help you to, to, to learn how to kind of shake off some of the rules and do things that are maybe more outside the box. Right. And, you know, to, to your point that you were making before as well, 
you know, kind of to come back to the physics analogies, like we are going to be talking about, as you said, um, you know, different topics, certainly. But, you know, I I, I want to really stress the importance that, you know, all these things I think can only really be understood within this framework of, of consistency. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps a good example would be something like electricity and magnetism, right? Where like, you know, you can imagine electricity as it's one, as one thing and magnetism as another thing, but fundamentally they are the same thing. Um, you know, the force of electromagnetism. And I think that this certainly, there are parallels to be drawn with, you know, for example, efficiency, tempo, um, curving out and consistency, you know, all these things in some sense having a unique identity, but also kind of, um, I would say they, they, they end up when you study them at a deeper level being very much the same thing or, or drawing upon a lot of the same ideas. Um, you know, uh, if we, if we even, I, I kind of want to even move on a little bit. And, and as far as like final thoughts on the matter are like, look at examples of decks that like fundamentally challenge the notion of consistency as like their plan, like take like chaos decks, for example. Um, you know, I think that these are decks that at their core are built to like try to make the game as inconsistent as possible. But like, you know, if they're not built with consistency in mind, they're never going to enact their plan such that like, you're never going to know that thematically that's a chaos deck. So like the very antithesis of consistency, which is chaos in some respects, um, Still needs some consistency. Still needs some consistency, yeah. You know, right. it, it still needs order. It still needs order, right? If you look at, like, you know, the the analogy that I think is, like, perfect here, or the example that I think is perfect, like, that... Or the anecdote, you know, that perfectly captures this, is, it like, from The Dark Knight. You know, like, when Joker says, do I look like a guy with a plan? Like, like he's like an agent of chaos, I think, fundamentally, as a character, and he insists that he doesn't have a plan. But he has a plan, right? Like, we don't know what his plan is because he's so many steps ahead of everyone at all times. And, like, Chaos right. decks are exactly like this. They have their elaborate plan to negate the consistency of other decks at the table. And the really, really well-built ones, what they do is they, they try to have a plan to thrive under those conditions. And, you know, some right. of them don't. And those are miserable to play against. Um, because they, they just can't win. Right. Like, and, and no one can win. And everyone says like, you know, what is the point of this? Um, and you know, I think once we, once we start talking about win conditions and power level and stuff like that, you know, that could be something worth revisiting. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, if, if I could kind of like leave with some final food for thought, I guess, before we end the episode, unless anyone else has any, any other thoughts or, uh, anything they want to sneak in at the last minute. No, I mean, I'm I trying really to say, hard not to go on a rant about why The Dark Knight is the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> uh, well, let's record so that right don't, after don't this build just the patrons. You know, it'll be that's, one of my, that's one of my trigger movies. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, if I could leave everyone with some food for thought, and you know, maybe this is a question we'll come back to in, in future episodes, or, or you know, maybe uh, you know, feel free to, to post about this in, in, in the comments below if you've made it this far. Um, you know, kudos to you if you have. 
but is consistency like a sufficient condition for success and you know success not necessarily defined as winning right can be defined as you know enacting some kind of theme um, for your deck and and making it very clear to everyone uh, that that's the theme of your deck or expressing yourself through your deck in some particular way so is it a sufficient condition for success or is it a necessary just a necessary condition for success um, you know what else contributes to a deck being successful or, or powerful um, I, I think that these are the questions that uh, we're gonna probably touch upon in the rest of the series um, absolutely and I, and I think that you know within this framework of consistency uh, this is certainly how I feel like just about anybody can can level up their deck building and, and the way they think about building decks yeah. and how they think about magic in general I would Agreed. totally agree with that yeah well, uh, that about wraps things up for us here today. Um, just a quick reminder uh, that you can follow us on Twitter at SculptyBoys, or you can find a direct link in our link tree in the description below. I want to also give an extra thanks to all of our patrons who help keep the lights on. If you too would like to become a patron, you can head on over to patreon.com slash the mind sculptors or check out the link in the description. Uh, thank you both uh, for joining us again. It's been a really insightful talk, and uh, you know I love these discussions that we have. Uh, I posted on Twitter uh, earlier this week uh, where I was, you know, every time uh, we we kind of plan these episodes, sometimes you you guys will all get in this big discussion about things, and I'll just kind of sit back and 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 realize how blessed I am to get to get to produce content with some of the, the, the best minds in the format. And uh, I, I truly appreciate you guys. Uh, this was awesome as general, or as, as it always is. So um, from all of us here at the Mind Sculptors, I'm Callahan, and we'll see you next time.